Hey, this is Sean Tepper, the host of Payback Time, an approachable and transparent podcast in building businesses, increasing wealth, and achieving financial freedom. I'd like to bring on guests to hear authentic stories while giving you actionable takeaways you can use today. Let's go. My next guest is a private equity investor who shares a story of four business adventures, three failures and one success. Now with the success, a little spoiler alert, he sold the company for low seven figures. He kind of walks through what the business model was and how he got there, but he also talks about what he did with the money and maybe some not so smart choices, which is kind of fun in itself. But then we lead up to what I would say is the most important part of the episode where he talks about five hot business ideas for 2024 and he gives a reason why behind each. So if you're an entrepreneur looking to start a business, this episode is packed with some really good ideas. All right, let's dive in. Please welcome LaShawn Smith. LaShawn, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean, how are you doing? Great to be here. Yeah, doing well. How about you? I'm well. I'm here in uh, kind of mid-sunny Seattle. Uh, this is the time of year where folks you know, imagine Seattle to be very gloomy, and it actually is. But uh, this is when I get a lot of work done, so I love this time of year. Heads down, I hear you. When you got bad weather, like we just we just flipped from like 60s to 30s overnight. Mm. It seemed like so. Here we go. Winter is here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, why don't we dive in here? Tell us about your background. Yeah. So um, I'll start at the top and then go back. I run a, a investment firm called Kager Investments. Uh, it stands for Compound Annual Growth Rate. So for the finance nerds out there, uh, they'll understand that term. And it's really just a culmination of what I like to call, you know, me tasting the buffet. So I've had a windy road in my profession, started as a software developer, moved into user experience design. After business school, I worked as a product manager. And those are different roles within the software development process on how you kind of bring together a piece of software to life. And uh, what it taught me was a lot about Number one, evaluating opportunities because when you are building something new, uh, you know, is it new because of the technology, a regulatory change? Is there actually some customer behavior that shifted? And we try not to, you know, build things because the technology is shiny and new, but actually because there's some demand there. Uh, the other piece is when you're building, uh, you know, the Peter Thiel book, Zero to One, when you're building that version zero to, to version one, there's so many other broken things and systems and support structures that are not in place that if you're a systems-based thinker, you'll quickly start to build a toolkit. And so through all of those experiences, uh, at a certain time, uh, you know, I would leave corporate America, go off and start a business. I did that four times. Uh, two businesses failed horribly. Uh, one uh, was an aqua hire. That's a term for when you basically... Um, sell the the company for break even to keep you know the team employed, and uh, the fourth actually had a decent exit. And part of the learning there is just you got to keep trying, you got to keep showing up. Uh, but what I do today is try to take all of the pieces uh, that I've learned through that and uh, try to find interesting companies to either acquire or to incubate. Um, and kind of my thesis is around audience and automation. So I look for businesses that can benefit from organic or content marketing, 
paired with some process automation. So, you know, there's ways to get rid of the paper, ways to reduce the human inefficiency. And uh, we can get into more detail on kind of what some of those things mean, but there is a, there's an unlimited number of opportunities out there for folks uh, looking at some of the, the, the small neck of the woods where I live. And uh, I always like to kind of get out there, beat the drum and let folks know um, my, my path, my option may not be the best for you, but I wanna make sure you know that it is an option. Sure. Awesome. Well, we'll dive into your private equity model here in a second. Um, I want to back up and I want to learn about that. Um, you had, so four companies and it sounds like two were failures, two were a success. Yeah. Okay. Well, well I, I don't know if the aqua hire is a success, but uh, okay. you know, at, at least uh, it was, you know, it wasn't like we burned all the cash. <laughs> gotcha. I've okay. also done a fifth. Uh, I was a, I wasn't the founder, but I was an early stage, um, um, executive and CTO at a, at a venture back startup also learned a ton there. Um, but a lot of these things are just, just that right. <laughs> Expensive tuition. And, yes. uh, it's like, you know, uh, all of these things create optionality and just like any, you know, option as an instrument, uh, it's not worth anything if you don't exercise it at some point in the future. So you got to keep showing up to the plate and, uh, kind of retrying. So, uh, I think part of my success has just been that, uh, edict, you know, double your failure rate, double your success rate. Yes, indeed. Okay. So let's go back to that, that fourth company that was a success. Let's dive in a little bit. What kind of business model was it? Yeah. So, so let's kind of hit the, the four quickly. The first Good. was a, um, uh, it was an agency. And, uh, when it got really hard, I was like, oh crap, I'm spending so much time one-to-one on the sales process, the delivery piece and support. And I was like, crap, this is this is not a business um, I believe no. I can sustain, right? And so I effectively just kind of gave up on that business. Uh, the second business was a uh, it was a software company, and I was, you know, sold that I could do consumer better than anyone else. And so we attempted to build a music service, and um, we did really great on the biz dev. So we got uh, some well known. Um, uh, musicians and recording artists, and I kind of tapped into some relations I had through friends and family. And, you know, we solved that part. And the tech actually was not bad as well. Um, but we had grossly underestimated our customer uh, acquisition costs, our, our CAC. And so the the cost to get people on this platform um, was just impractical. And so that that flamed out. Uh, the third was, uh, this was the Aqua, the Aqua Hire deal. Uh, we built a piece of software to connect SMS to large stadium screens. And so if you think about, uh, this is a long time ago, uh, it's still kind of a valuable thing. You have cap, you know, a captive audience at a football, baseball, basketball game, and you are trying to kind of get them more involved. Uh, you know, a lot of these stadiums even today don't have great Wi-Fi, but the they have enough coverage now where text messages works pretty well. And so we would um, work with a creative agency to create some type of uh, visual participation. Uh, and it's like, if you look to the screen, you know, such and such, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we'd give away signed, you know, um, sneakers from one of the players uh, at a big college game. One time we gave away a Harley Davidson uh, motorcycle. And so and so folks were like, oh, I really want to participate. And uh, 
they would see their their participation in real time. The numbers will be moving based upon who's in the audience is responding over these text messages. But the real business model was the sponsor for those would get the whole CRM of the SMS database. Uh, and so they'd get this the you know, captive audience that they could retarget. And so the fundamentals of that business was uh, was quite sound. And we had uh, we had some decent folks. We had uh, you know uh, an MLB team. We had a few college uh, stadiums. Uh, we had uh, I think it's crypto now. At the time, it was called the Staples Center in LA. So we had we had landed some some decent size uh, um, uh, customers and spaces. Um, but we realized like all right, this is going to be like a sales team, like a three person sales team in like every region. And so for folks out there who are doing like um, you know. Local marketing, one of the, you know, the hacks they say to start with is just go look at the football cities, look at the cities that have a major football team and directionally that's going to help you size out where there's probably enough kind of people density to kind of sort out these types of businesses. And we're like, all right, well, crap, we're going to need, you know, 30, 40 of these regional footprints. So that means we you know we're going to staff up to 120 people. And we started to look at this and said, this isn't a technology company. This is this is a sales company. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're like, crap. And so we ended up selling that to uh, an agency um, that was um, they had a whole kind of swath of other services they were trying to sell um, to some of these sponsors, and they 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 saw this as a great wedge. And so that was a, a good lesson on um, really understanding the dynamics of the business. Uh, and then the last company uh, that I started was a uh, mobile uh, enterprise app company, and this was uh, this was in 2011, so it's been a while. And uh, what I Learn, you know, from those other missteps uh, was really how to think about the um, the end goal. <laughs> like I went to this business, like, all right, how do I sell this thing, or how do I get this to cash flow very quickly? I was like, well, like one of the two options. There's no in between. We're not going to try to uh, get on the VC train uh, and keep this thing alive uh, with hopes and dreams. And uh, the the unique insight, and I believe all businesses to try to find this. Uh, you know, if anyone's aspiring to to go start something, uh, to have something that is unique. Uh, I believe it is uh, Matt Ridley. Uh, he wrote the book um, The Rational Optimist, uh, and it's an interesting take. And the summary really is for many folks out there: you want to have a contrarian view to the future that is both rational and optimistic. Right. And so when you combine all of those three, that's kind of where the value can be unlocked. You want to see the world differently than everyone else, but not through a pessimistic lens. You're trying to see the world through some optimistic lens, uh, but you're not just some crazy dreamer. You know, there's still a rational, pragmatic kind of approach to it. And um, and so I went in this business, you know, hopefully kind of keeping some of those ideals in place. And um, what I found that unique insight was uh, at the time, you know, the iPhone had been out for about four years but no one had really figured out how to connect it to these big enterprise back end. Uh, so, uh, you know, if someone gets a big paycheck um, for a big company, they might have that process through software like SAP or, or something like that. And uh, we figured out how to take these big, heavy enterprise software systems and tie them to a mobile phone. And then we, we built a few little toolkits. And so sales teams love this because we were able to, sometimes in days, uh, definitely in weeks, built these mobile apps where the sales team could have real-time access to their inventory. And really what set us up for success is we landed some really large companies, uh, a couple of finance, uh, what would now be fintech companies, uh, a massive, uh, one of the largest semiconductor manufacturers. And 
they were they had used this for sales enablement to say like, all right, you want to buy X amount of these chips? How many many do we really have? Right? We had some rudimentary forecasting models built in, and so they could just whip out their phone and see this, and uh, it was like a no brainer. And so as this market started to mature, folks looked around and said like, who's in this space? Who are we competing with? And uh, we were definitely punching above our weight. And at a certain point, some companies looked around and said, wait, hold on. Why is this little 16 person company in Seattle, Washington, you know, have an exclusive with, you know, some of these, you know, large names. And uh, when the first deal starts showing up, I realized like, if we didn't say yes to one of these, um, somebody's going to step on us. And so I knew we didn't have a ton of runway. So even though the business was in good shape, I I saw structurally in the industry, uh, we didn't have a real moat. And so, um, uh, so, so we sold the company. And uh, so anyway, you know, I've learned through that process. I'll give you one bonus. Um, after that exit, you know, I had some cash and I tried a bunch of different things. I, you know, I've invested uh, in multiple independent feature films. I've, you know, done a couple spec homes. Um, I've, you know, all sorts of asset classes where I've tried to learn. Uh, But one of the ones I did was a, um, I started a a salad shop uh, here in town. And, you know, here's, here's LaShawn, you know, software guy. And I'm like, I got this figured out. I'm going to help people eat healthier. I'm going to build this cool spot. And I don't really count this as one of my businesses because uh, I wasn't the operator. I was I was the capital and kind of the strategic vision. But I share this story because it's one of the most ones I'm most proud of. Um, we started this business and I'm like, I'm going to have amazing branding. I have a pretty good taste for that. Um, our, our branding, our, our in-store experience was amazing. Um, you know, our signage, we had beautiful photos. Menu design um, was was really well done. Tech stack, I'm like, we're going to have the best loyalty program, all your pre... Like, I had done all the things. And uh, what got me was uh, how grossly I underestimated how hard it was to kind of forecast, you know, things with high spoilage, right? Salad dressing goes bad. You know, romaine lettuce goes bad. Um, you know, it's hard to get folks who don't have a kind of a stake in the business to always show up on time. And uh, I had to shut it down. And so one of my, you know, kind of proud artifacts is uh, on my hard drive is a screenshot I took from the Yelp page. And it says uh, the name of the business was Fine Salads. It says Fine Salads. And then at the bottom, it says permanently closed. You've probably <laughs> seen one of these <laughs> where like the business no longer exists. And like, it seems silly, but every once in a while, I just go pop up and look at that and be like, yep, uh, that's what happened. And so yeah. so those have been some of the journeys along the way. And, you know, that one wasn't super painful. Uh, it actually, you know, taught me a lot. And now as I look and do diligence on deals, a lot of what I learned there helps me quickly suss out if I believe a you know cash flow or revenue stream for a business is durable. Yeah, it's a lot of great experience. I and thanks for doing the kind of rapid fire timeline of these different ventures. Cause I'm the same way. If people want to go through, okay, what were your failures? Buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one by yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I ask the, the this mobile app enterprise company, can you share what uh you sold it for? Yeah. So the company was called OnePlane. We sold it. Uh there was an earnout. Uh so the actual ticket price was five million, but we sold it for three million dollars. Um, but we had no investors. And so, you know, for some folks, you know, they say like, well, that's just a tiny little exit. Um, you know, I had left Microsoft uh, to start that. That, And this is another interesting story, I think, for folks who are struggling to kind of figure out, should they go and do this? Um, we had, um, as myself and, and two folks I had worked with in the past, uh, I had the capital, I had the idea, but, you know, m- these things never work without without others who help you out. 
And um, I had about a quarter million dollars in uh, restricted stock units. So these are RSUs or stock grants that you'll many times get at these corporations that had not uh, vested. And so when I was quitting, it, like I had so much stress, you know, because, you know, in my brain, I was like, I'm, I'm leaving $250,000 on the table. Um, and it just seemed like all the money in the world. Uh, and when I, um, it was probably about month four or so I had pinged my, uh, my CPA, my bookkeeper. And I was like, is this cash flow right? Because we had a, we had a couple of deals. And so I knew the size of the deals, but I didn't, you know, sometimes these big companies, they don't pay you on time. And uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. you, you can see the paper number, but the cash flow number is a different number. And I said, is this number right? Um, she said, yeah, that's right. Uh, they, uh, they paid at the top of the, you know, it was a, like a net 45 and they paid in like seven days. And then, anyway, there was like 700 something thousand dollars in the bank account. And my brain was like, I was over here stressing over this quarter million dollars that I was leaving on the table. And in hindsight, you know, four months later, like it was just so silly how I was, you know, had this scarcity mindset yes. and wasn't wasn't really leaning into like there was all this potential. And I was I was keeping myself down, right, by not taking action. Yeah. And I'm not saying people should just go out and squander bird in the hand. But what I'm saying is like for me, I had like slowed myself down because I was afraid to take action. Yeah. And uh, once I actually took, you know, that that true bias for action and, and, and moved, you know, with some intention, things changed. Um, a few things on that deal um, is, you know, while that was a relatively, again, for acquisition standards, a uh, relatively small deal, um, because there was there's no investors, uh, the, you know, the liquidity was great. Two things that I did wrong, um, number one, I had a really, uh, I didn't have a tax strategy in place, right? Mm. And so I paid some crazy taxes on on that deal. You didn't um, go into real estate? <laughs> well, I you saying, mm. what, what did I do with the money? Uh, well, was, my first strategy would have been like, try to uh, prevent Uncle Sam from getting a big cut. Let's go into some syndicates, some real estate, large yeah, property. So, yeah, so... <laughs> So one of the things is first, I just didn't have a strategy at all. Yeah. Uh, and so I knew some of the asset classes I wanted to move into. But the second is uh, where the deal landed. Um, I should have pushed the deal out to the top of the calendar year. So I had more time to go restructure and potentially find another deal to offset those. And so maybe it would have been some type of you know, accelerated depreciation with some other asset class. But I just I was just all over the place on on not knowing how to structure. And I was like, all right, yeah, there's going to be like, you know, two and a half million dollars in my bank account in a few days. And like my brain was like, you know, you know, let's go. Um, the other piece is. Uh, I didn't last on the earnout, so I wasn't allowed to compete in a certain space, and I had, you know, a certain term uh, that I had to kind of mm-hmm. sit out of the game. Uh, that was the, really the, the core structure of that deal, whereas I couldn't um, go rebuild this this type of company uh, for a certain time period, and um, I, I, I just, you know, was getting antsy. There was all sorts of things I would have restructured that earnout uh, very differently now, uh, and in hindsight, everything worked out. Um, I ended up being a boomerang, as they call them in corporate America, I went back to Microsoft and uh, I took all those lessons. And this is, I think, something else that can be helpful for folks. Um, I came in with a fair amount of leverage because, you know, I, you know, that wasn't enough money from that exit to to retire, but that was enough to give me some breathing room on what I wanted to do next. And so I like made all my demands (laughs) for that and uh, I structured my employee contract uh, to to really be option and stock heavy. And I came in 
uh, on that deal at uh, I think $35, $38 on Microsoft stock price. Uh, and we, we know where that's at now. And that, that uh -huh. you know, there's also there's also a split in there. Uh, and so I made much more money um, just going back to corporate America than, than that exit, but it all is connected, right? Like I don't have the courage to make the demands. I don't know the right way to structure that employment contract. I don't know any of these things, have, you know, if I don't both have the courage uh, and, you know, feel like I have enough leverage to say, this is what, why I'm going to show up, uh, and had a fantastic run there. Uh, and then through that, you know, space, I did do some of these other things and experiments that, that I talked about. Uh, and, and now I'm, I'm much more, um, risk averse and structured on how I tackle things, but I got like all these samples at the cocktail party of these different ways that I could attempt to move. And I've tried to find the right balance of, I need the intellectual stimulation, but I'm also not trying to just go chase the reckless deals. Yeah, uh, I I want to jump into what you invest in a moment, but I, I just have to poke fun a little bit. Like you wanted to sample with ways to lose money, movie yeah. industry, <laughs> yes, restaurants. <laughs> oh my goodness! And the the crazy part is, you know, while my background and my family structure, we didn't have a ton of you know kind of financial literacy. wasn't something that I was uh, you right. know well guarded on. But over time, I started figuring out and I got lucky with some great mentors and sponsors who helped me um, kind of avoid some like really, um, you know, more dangerous mistakes. But for those examples, it wasn't that no one told me that those are super risky. It was my arrogance. I was like, I can do this better than anyone else. Right. And, and that was the silly part. Right. And so um, what I have come to realize is, you know, my wins largely have been um, um, a point of two things. One, I just kept showing up. And so that's something that I think others can replicate. But two, I just showed up in industries that had these major tailwinds that were going to work regardless, right? Mm. And and I was kind of misplacing my confidence thinking like LaShawn did some of that. Uh, and so where we play, I mean, that's one of the famous, you know, Warren Buffett stories, um, I think is so critical. Um, it's not just how smart are you? What's your system? How do you network? Um, you know, what customer problem are you solving? It's like, are you just getting in the right boat? And if you pick the wrong one, uh, mathematically, it doesn't matter what you do, you may be at a disadvantage. Right on. Let's take a quick commercial break. Are you a beginner investor and want to increase your confidence with investing? Ticker EDU is now live, which includes investing courses. The first course is titled Stock Investing for Beginners, which includes over 60 videos that take you through modules, including overcoming myths, the difference between stocks, ETFs, index funds, and mutual funds, investing versus trading, the number one reason why stocks go up and down, knowing when to buy, knowing when to sell, increasing confidence, how to invest your first thousand dollars and real life examples. It's like looking over my shoulder to see how I buy and sell stocks. Simply go to edu.ticker.com or go to ticker.com and click the courses link at the top of the page. Okay, back to the show. Um, I have to ask here, would I recognize the two films you invested in? Are they, are they um, bigger, like bigger box films? Yeah, no, these are all independents, uh, but we have um, okay. done multiple deals. So the interesting thing about film finance, this is something that I've now learned. Uh, again, you know, once you get these reps, mm -hmm. uh, I love thinking about all these asset classes. Uh, you know, I haven't done like collectibles or fine art or anything like that. Um, but, you know, I now have learned how the Clearport works and how people use, you know, art to do write downs, you know, uh, through, you know, uh, estate sales and, and uh, transfers. But 
for films, uh, two things for folks who are based in the US. Um, and again, I'm not saying you should do this. This is very risky investments, but mm -hmm. it might spark ideas for your industry or what you do. Number one is take a look at the tax code. And in the US, what happened years ago is uh, there were other countries that start saying, come over to our country and we have a replica of you know these blocks in New York City, or we have a replica or what have you. Uh, Vancouver, BC and, and Canada was one of the big ones uh, to kind of kick this art out. And so there was this Hollywood flight that was happening. So the IRS and the federal government passed this rule called Section 181. And what it allowed for was accelerated depreciation for both LPs and GPs, but primarily for LPs who are investing in film productions. And the way it would work was, uh, and there's two crazy things, like I still don't know how this was, was written into law. And it's been tried a couple times, I think in the Obama uh, years and the Trump years, uh, there was a like, you know, are we gonna take this thing down and it keeps surviving? I don't know who's lobbying for, for 181, maybe it's some, some Hollywood folks. But when you put a dollar in, you are allowed to fully depreciate that dollar as long as one shot has been um, filmed for the project. So the project does not have to be completed. Um, the project, it doesn't even have to come out. Um, like this is just really? crazy, right? This is a really crazy rule. And you're allowed to depreciate every dollar you, you, you put in. Um, and the way this works is it's, it's a offset to your other passive income streams. Yeah. So you don't get to take that dollar and get your dollar back. What you get, let's say if you're at a 37%, you know, tax rate, you will get a 37% uh, discount. It's almost like donating to a nonprofit, right? Yes. You know, yes. like there's a cap, like the, the, the tax math is very similar. And um, you get that 37 cents in that tax year, right? So, so really what you're putting in is 63 cents on the dollar in that production. So off the bat, you've now like softened the the kind of economic structure of these yeah. deals. And so that's something I learned that's really, really powerful. And then you can tax other local uh you know tax strategies you know louisiana georgia they have additional things that you can kind of keep stacking these deals and if you structure it properly many times you can you can be at about 50 cents on the dollar for your production wow. right and so this is how most rational you know kind of financially informed uh film producers or television shows are actually produced right like no one's saying like you know, my cousin or my niece has this great idea. I'm just going to give them some money and let's hope it's a hit. Um, no, there's a whole tax strategy that's really critical here. The second thing that uh, that's really interesting about this is the ability to do co-finance deals. And so what will happen is, you know, you can do a spec film like you might build a spec house. Right. And it's it's just as it sounds. It's highly speculative. You're you will probably go to zero. Uh, and so what happens is if you do a. Uh, a co-finance film, um, if you structure the deal properly, you say, hey, I am going to produce this project with these stars in it, and it's going to have, you know, it's going to be done about this time. Uh, and there's all sorts of legal wiggle room on the buyer side. That's the distributor or the streamer. Um, you know, on like creatively, if you give us some stuff that's bad or it's just full of offensive content, like there's all these outs that um, don't give you a bulletproof guarantee. But that contract is effectively collateral that you can then go use to raise funding. And what you say is, um, we'll front the first half, you front the post-production and any of the marketing, right? And so uh, that's that's a, 
you know, a strategy where you have to go do the business development to, to have the relationships with the direct buyers, right? This isn't like going through a sales agent, um, but this is a really interesting way to go structure these deals. And you see this in real estate and other assets where you look at the capital stack and it's like you have your GPs, your LPs, your MES debt, your, you know, um, preferred debt. And so the, the the debt stack or the capital stack looks very similar. Anyway, the punchline for, for this is... Um, did multiple of these. I uh, have done six of these. Two of them uh, films have not come out because um, this and this was like two and a half years ago, right? And so this is the other thing that is just like goodness. These things take a long time. They do. Um, but one um, was a deal with Netflix. Uh, it's a children's film called Fearless, uh, and uh, did, did really good on the uh, the window there. And another is called uh, Venus as a Boy. Uh, really proud of that one because uh, we we tried the film circuit, which is uh, the film festival circuit, which could be really tricky. Uh, and that one was a um, uh, film that landed in Tribeca uh, and did really well um, in the circuit there. And uh, that film was sold to uh, Hulu. Uh, and so, you know, you can make these types of deals work. The reason I would uh, I would advise most people to stay away from this asset class is it's too permission based. And like I got so lucky so many times in my life where it's just like the timing was the reason it won. Like I sold my you know, my mobile app company, my enterprise company. And because of the timing, right, there was a little window. And, you know, the only credit I can give myself is like, I'm paying attention to trends and the timing, but I can't guarantee that, you know, I was there at the right time. Right now, because we've moved out of ZERP um, and we're in a place where debt is so much more expensive, uh, that that film approach isn't going to work because the streamers and everyone, ha they have much more leverage, right? And so they might give you a deal that is less attractive. They might want to stretch out the cash flow. Like there's all sorts of things that um, they can use to extract more value out of you because they have more austerity that they are following. Uh, and so the idea of like, there's all this cheap money, let's go make a movie and then sell it to, you know, some big streamer. Uh, it's not a something that you can replicate when, um, you know, interest rates are high. So anyway, that's a, that's, the, that's the story on that little side thing, but I've experimented with all these things and learned a ton of uh, pieces. And what I love about, you know, this randomness is, even though I don't believe most folks should follow a path like that, you know, investing in films, mm -hmm. there's so many things that apply to kind of just a traditional deal flow. And a lot of this, again, is like when you do enough of these deals, your brain starts to pattern match. And it doesn't matter if you go into prop tech or agriculture or, you know, local B2B services. You're like, oh, a lot of this stuff carries uh, from from industry to industry, small company to large. Right on. You you see the formula that works. And at the yeah. same time, you know, because I've been involved in a lot of different types of businesses and worked for some larger companies as well. So I know the edge cases on, hey, what's a scalable business? What's a business I do not want? Like I, I had an yeah. agency as well in the 2000s and learned, wow, this is not a scalable business model. Yeah. As my revenues increase, so do my liabilities, my payroll. Yeah. <laughs> totally, <laughs> just, totally. Very difficult. But but yeah, this this is a good segue into what kind of companies do you invest in today? Yeah. So one of the things I found was um, through all of that randomness is um, I need to follow the type of businesses that don't just mathematically make sense, but are true to kind of how I get energized. I have a personal North Star that is six words, three sentences. Know thyself, make things, stay free. And like, this is just top of mind, you know, when I'm saying yes to a meeting, when I'm, you know, committing to do any business travel to like 
anything that's using my minutes or my money, uh, I am trying to say like, am I violating my own personal constitution of those three sentences? And the first one is I have to know myself and um, I don't want to be in a business that is against my values, obviously, but also where it's going to drain the energy from me. And, you know, one of the things I really disliked about working in corporate America was I'd be on all these, you know, meetings with peers and other things. They're like, why am I in this meeting? And it wasn't like the people weren't nice or what have you. It's just I didn't care about the problem or their customer. Right. And at a certain point of seniority, you're, you're not working on the same thing as, you know, the person next to you. They, they're they in a total different business because you're all running, you know, your own business lines. And I just did not enjoy, you know, spending my time that way. The second is I like to be close to the making of things. You know, there's that great Peter Drucker quote, um, you know, the management consultant. The purpose of a business is is to create and uh, keep a customer. There's nothing else. Right. And so basically, you know, what I took out of that and I've reminded myself is there's, you know, you make things and you sell things. Everything else, you know, not to knock the lawyer or the HR professional or whatever, they're there to manage risk or people friction or all these other pieces because you're trying to aggregate labor at scale. But but at the core, the two functions that matter and will, you know, if you don't handle, you will go out of business is somebody has to sell the thing and somebody has to make the thing. And I realized for me, while I, I really love marketing, a lot of parts about go to market, um, you know, I started off as a software developer and the power there is like you can have an idea in your brain, type on a keyboard and, you know, the factory of the laptop spits, you know, a widget out. And like that is just really, really, you know, empowering to my brain. And so that's, you know, that's make things. And then the last is just stay free. Uh, one of the reasons I have not raised a ton of capital from LPs is, uh, you know, the fiduciary duty that comes when you raise, you know, or the hedge fund, a VC firm, you know, a PE firm, uh, you know, those are 10 year relationships that you're committing to. Um, like, even if you don't kind of keep raising your assets under management and you start to, you know, you're just like, all right, I, you know, I've raised, you know, maybe you've raised couple hundred million over two or three funds, um, you still got to wind that thing down. You still may have board seats. You still like, there's all this work that happens. Uh, and you can't just say like, you know what? Uh, I'm excited about some new technology. I'm going to go chase this other thing. Like, you know, here's my two week notice. Uh, and so I've learned enough from these other experiences, you know, deals that I did, um, you know, as an angel investor, that's a whole nother angle uh, that uh, I spent some time there. Uh, to, to realize you have to take these relationships seriously. And for me, the freedom to move around and change my mind uh, is very important. And so what I do now is every year, this is the window, kind of the season, the, in Q4, I spend time looking at different themes. Uh, maybe we can hit some of these before we wrap up mm -hmm. on like what I think are ideas where there's some opportunity. It doesn't mean I'm going to invest in everyone, but it's really something for me to say like, okay, I'm going to give my per myself permission to go look at new things. And uh, for the next year, I'm going to stay locked in focus uh, on that thing. But I give myself permission to go look at something you know, new every year. And that keeps me energized and refreshed, uh, which is very different from folks who, you know, they have a certain kind of uh, kind of capital stack that they have to allocate. And, you know, the SEC is going to come 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 a knock in if they don't you know, do right by their LPs. Uh, and like, I, you know, that's a way you can make a lot of money. That's not a path for me. Right on. Well, let's dive into that. What are some of the themes that are jumping out for 2024? Yeah, let me uh, hold up. I got the list open here. Um, so I have, I have five buckets here. And again, this is not a, you know, 
a top-down analysis. We looked at every trend and like there's a lot of anecdotes and and personal pieces. I believe that your your talent stack, what you're good at, uh, what your interests and values are, and uh, kind of you know where you have an unfair advantage, maybe it's your network or something else, is very important. And so my list of things, you know, there's definitely a macro lens, but it's focused on some of the areas where I feel like I can add some value. But the first one is aging in style. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a very unpopular thing to talk about out loud. Uh, we know all of the, you know, the boomers and now even Gen Xers are starting to, you know, they're hitting 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and we talk about this wealth transfer that's going to occur, you know, where all these Gen Z and millennials are going to get all of this cash that these boomers have. Um, the, the insight, the unique insight here is these boomers aren't trying to go out, um, you know, not in style, right? Um, they're like, I don't want to go to this raggedy um, nursing home. I don't want to not try this longevity practice. Like, they're spending more and more of their money uh, and they can't, you know, they're not going to put this on TikTok and say, like, let me show you how I'm living my best life. Uh, one, you know, that's not how they generally move. But two, the social norms will penalize someone who in an economy that is unstable and there's a lot of folks who aren't doing well. Uh, you don't want to show yourself at some wellness retreat for eight thousand dollars a week um, where you're just like, you know, getting my 65 year old self tuned up. Right. And, and so there's this whole shadow market of folks that are still both motivated and have the cash to spend. And the numbers are mind boggling. I got um, I was at a Four Seasons um, uh, over the summer and their salespeople followed up and they said, hey, LaShawn, we've noticed you've been staying at our hotels and blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, we like to to share some more about this opportunity for this new product that uh, we're, we're selling. I'm like, all right, this is a sales call. Maybe I can learn something from the sales call. I probably won't buy what they're, they're selling. But uh, they were pitching me on a Four Seasons airline um, trip. And uh, I won't get into all the details of the thing, but it, it's basically like it's a, it's a branded Four Seasons you know, plane. And they take you to all these exotic places to their hotels. And over the course of 14 days, you get this like amazing experience. Um, the punchline is you got to buy at least two tickets and each one is $130,000 to start, <laughs> right? Okay. Um, so you're at 260 in on this thing just to start. And it's like a buck 80 for like the package you would really want, right? So this $360,000, this is crazy numbers, right? Um, and, you know, I said, no, I was like, yeah, I'm not, not interested in that. Um, but I did a little digging after, after that sales call, like who was actually buying this? Um, and it is these older folks um, who... They, you know, they have these bucket list experiences and they're and they have a ton of cash and the, you know, the asymmetry in who has like these big buckets of cash is just really fascinating. Um, the other part of that is longevity. Um, so it's not that they want to take expensive vacations or they want to buy, you know, they're empty nesters and now they want to buy really nice houses. Uh, the side part on real estate is service based residents for the seniors are exploding. Uh, they want to live in a Ritz Carlton or Four Seasons branded residence. Uh, they don't want to mow the lawn. They don't want to do any of this stuff. And they're willing to pay a two, three. Uh, here in Seattle, the Four Seasons, uh, the the HOA is five thousand dollars a month for the like these crazy numbers, right? And you're like, who has the money for this? Um, these boomers. There's a there's a percentage of them that have done very well in life, and they're going to give money to their kids and grandkids. But they are going to 
live in style, right? And mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, the, the the longevity piece is a huge thing, and there's all sorts of new preventative ways to make sure you're keeping yourself in better condition. Uh, you know, we see like the Brian Thompson or, um, or Brian Johnson folks who uh, that's the guy from Braintree who spends I think two million dollars a year kind of that. on his longevity. Um, I have I have multiple friends who spend ten grand a month um, on their personal longevity, and like it's just it's just to me it's crazy. And so anyway, I, I'm going to spend more time on that one just kind of give you details. Like each of these buckets have a ton of kind of you know layered insights. Yes. Um, but this one is there are folks who have high motivation. They're facing their mortality and they have um, huge sums of cash. Uh, you know, and because they're in the latter stages of their life, they move this money to, you know, to bonds or to cash or some cash equivalent. So it's not even like it's locked up somewhere that's not liquid. Like, you know, they could just write these checks. And so that's an interesting insight. And any, um, you know, new business or even public companies that are um, trying to accommodate these folks who are aging in style, um, that to me is is a really interesting space. Uh, I'll go through the others more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, GovTech. Uh, B to G, as we hmm. increasingly, you know, are attacked by um, various uh, kind of macro and social uh, issues. Uh, we have more variability in values, and we have to figure out how everybody comes together. I think technology is going to be really key to that um, as AI starts to put pressure on productivity and maybe job loss comes out of that. You know, I think the government, you know, I, I wish they wouldn't, but they're going to have to get involved on some place. Otherwise, we're going to have riots in the street and safety issues and what have you. And so it's not just like, oh, you should build SaaS for the government. I think there's a whole class of, of B2G uh, investments, uh, and it goes on the, the social safety side of things, uh, the education, health side of things, maybe even housing, uh, all the way to DOD and defense. Uh, we're seeing companies like Anduril and Planet, uh, Palantir and others who are uh, more on that side. And, and so when you look at this whole piece, it's just like, this is a bucket where it's been underserved. And if you follow a dual use technology model, so companies that uh, they're they're building a product for the government, they can also be repurposed for private sector. I think there's a lot of potential there. Uh, PropTech, um, you know, we know there's a, a shortage in construction labor, and I'm very bullish on folks who are trying to figure out how to retrain um, uh, folks who have maybe moved out of that space or train new folks who are like, I don't want to do physical labor. I just want to be famous on TikTok. Um, you got to figure out how to get these folks involved. Um, and I think you're going to have to add technology to allow them to work more efficiently because you won't have enough people. And, you know, immigration policy uh, is likely going to also impact this. And so we're just not going to have enough humans to kind of get this thing sorted. So prop tech is a, is a big one. Um, I talked about solopreneurs. Um, I'm very bullish in that there's a new class of tools they're going to allow, allow people from zero to 20 employees punch way above their their weight. Uh, and I'm not just saying folks who, not to knock this, people who have, um, you know, maybe, you know, information or coaching businesses, but folks who actually can start delivering services um, in a meaningful way without being burnt out, you know, as solopreneurs, because they can automate so much of the sales delivery and support, yeah. you know, pillars. Uh, then the last is uh, virtual creators. This is something I learned from you know my my time in the entertainment industry, and I believe there's going to be a um, a new class of uh, there's going to be a celebrity disruption. There's going to be a new class of influencer. There's going to be a new you know range of Mickey Mouse, um, yeah. and uh, there's a great um, 
chart on the web uh, that I've, I've gone back to a couple of times. It looks at the top media franchises grossing. It includes merch, includes box office, home, home video, like you know, all the revenue streams. And when you look at it, there's very few live action on the list. You know, I think Star Wars is, you know, five or six or somewhere there that Harry Potter is on there. But the like the number one is Pokemon. Number two is Hello Kitty. Um, like like you think about this and you're like, oh, my goodness. Another interesting one is Spider-Man is almost as big as Marvel. They're they're in the same slot. They're touching each other. And the reason Marvel has this crazy box office number, but Spider-Man has this massive merch number and. The reason I'm so bullish on this is if you talk to people about this topic at length, um, you will get a polarization very quickly. You know, not not investors, but people who like, would you buy a lunchbox or would you buy a sweatshirt or would you buy a movie for your kid that has one of these fake, you know, creators, uh, you know, kind of virtual IP characters on them? And the polarization is so extreme. I've learned when I hear that polarization, there's money to be made. Because there's going to be folks who are like, I want yeah. the traditional way. I want to preserve the, you know, the artist craft. And other folks are like, no, I want a hyper personalized experience where my kid can watch a movie that says their name in it. And when I see that, you know, that polarization, I know there's 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 some economic opportunity. So anyway, that's uh, the the big buckets, and hopefully that maybe can spark some ideas for folks. I I love it. Thanks for giving the rundown here. That might even be the title of the episode. We'll see. Yeah. But. Uh, we got to wrap up here because uh, we're running toward the top of the hour. I've got my next meeting. But real quick here, where can the audience reach you? Yeah, well, um, two things. If folks actually have a business where they are looking to sell, uh, I buy relatively small businesses. Uh, typically, um, if the deal is under $10 million, but at least $500,000 in EBITDA, give me a shout. You can hit our group uh, email at grow at com. And then if you just want to chop it up, maybe ask a question or just talk about any of these topics uh, offline, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and it's L-A-S-E-A-N-S-M-I-T-H, just my full name. Um, happy to uh, reach out. DMs are open and uh, I'm pretty good at replying there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, LaShawn. This is great. Great to hang out, Sean. Take care. All right. We'll see you. Hey, I'd like to say thank you for checking out this podcast. I know there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to, so thanks for spending some time with me. And if you have a moment, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. The more reviews we get, especially five-star reviews, the higher this podcast will rank in Apple. So thanks for doing that. And remember, this show is for entertainment purposes only. If you heard any stocks mentioned on this podcast, please do not buy or sell those stocks based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks for your time. We'll see ya.